This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Fabulous. You guys look like a tree in my neighborhood. <laughs> All right. Um, well, after reading and studying and meditating on this week's scripture, it's my pleasure to share with you what God has spoken to me. Um, I want to wish a special good morning to the Thursday morning group. Uh, it's an example that uh, with God anything is possible that y'all get up and are publicly presentable that early on a regular basis, so good morning to you. Um, so, so I'm tempted to title today's lesson, All Stephen, All the Time. Um, but I don't think he would like that. <laughs> Nonetheless, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we meet Stephen for the first time. And uh, we see his good works, his witness, um, and his martyrdom. All in two chapters. Full circle. Uh, these chapters depict a transition in the early church. And I'll read Jesus' own words that uh, kind of foretell this transition. They were the last words he spoke to the apostles before he was taken up to heaven. This is from Acts uh, 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God uses Stephen to move the witness of the early church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity for us to be here together, to the opportunity to give us to study and, and know you more through your holy word. Father, thank you for Stephen, the example of the early church, and the way that we can contemplate what that means about you, God, and what it means for our lives today. Father, I want to lift up and pray for our friends who can't be here today. I know there's some illness going around, so I would like to offer a sincere prayer for the ladies who can't be here, that you would be with them, and that you would heal them, and that you would bring them back to us soon. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we meet Stephen at the beginning of chapter 6, where we find that the number of disciples in the early church had grown. So the church looked a little different now, right? Maybe some time had passed. Um, in fact, the growing numbers likely contributed to the fact that they were no longer organized in such a way that they were sharing everything equally, as had been referenced in the past. And I surmise this because a complaint arose from the Grecian Jews against the Hebraic Jews because their widows and orphans were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. So the church was growing, and that's good, but the growth brought about some challenges. And we've seen that, right, in the modern world. Um, God uses this story to show us an early example of church leadership and administration. Now, administration is not exactly exciting, is it? Maybe it's not inspiring, but it's necessary. The early church was comprised, still, of Jewish people, but they didn't share everything in common. Some of these people were from Palestine, and they had grown up in the, uh, in the, the Holy Land. 
and they spoke um, Aramaic or Hebrew. But then there was another group who were from other places, and they spoke mainly Greek. And you can imagine that maybe if they're speaking a different language and the place where they grew up was maybe a little different, they had different customs, there might have been some groupiness, clickiness going on there. Um, and we can relate to that too, can't we? Um, so it was the Grecian Jews who brought their complaint to the apostles that their um, widows and orphans weren't getting uh, the right amount of food in the distribution. And that was, by the way, that's a, 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 a very rich tradition and responsibility um, for the Jewish people, taking care of widows and orphans, right? We've, we've heard that all throughout the Old Testament, that that is a theme that people in that, cultural, in that culture who just really didn't have an opportunity to take care of themselves. And so um, the Grecian Jews brought the complaint and uh, and, and, and here's something interesting. This wasn't a spiritual issue that was brought to the apostles, like when Ananias and Sapphira and it lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, it was kind of just a problem that came as a result of the growing pains of the church. So they brought their complaint, and uh, the apostles responded splendidly. Um, but I have to admit, when I read their words in 2017, um, it, you know, it could seem a little dismissive, because here's what they said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. <laughs> Did any of you notice that when you read it? Did that seem, um, but we all know, right, that, that their intent was not to be dismissive, that they were, that was, they were just making their point. Um, and so uh, they simply wanted to solve the problem and continue their mission and the mission for the church. So they gathered all the disciples together and asked them to choose seven men from among them who were full of the spirit and wisdom. <coughs> they would turn the responsibility over to them and give their attention to prayer and ministry of the word. The people chose seven men, all with Greek-sounding names. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So there you have it, the first deacons of the church. The seven included Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, both of whom we will hear from very soon. The other five, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, aren't mentioned any further in Scripture. But Timon did go on to make a name for himself, centuries later in a wildly successful Disney movie. <laughs> oh, thank you for laughing. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at my Disney joke. Okay. If you don't know who Timon is, please talk to me later, because it's important. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, so this story provides some very sound principles for church leadership. The apostles realized they couldn't attend to every aspect of the church and the leadership of the church. So they established a division of responsibilities. They also recognized that Jesus has a point, had appointed them as a group so they asked for a group of men to take over this responsibility. Plural leadership. Spiritual qualifications matter. So they asked the people to choose men who were known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. That was the primary qualification. They could have asked for people who were farmers. They could have asked for people who had um, excellent you know, food handling skills. Uh, but, and, and perhaps the, the seven men chose people to help. But the, but the primary qualification uh, was spiritual 
for this uh, leadership position. So, finally, they sought out servant leaders. We're told that Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And his very important job was to oversee the distribution of food to widows and orphans. Some people might not find that to be a prestigious position. But Jesus was the very example of servant leadership. His words are clear in Mark 9.35. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So I want to point out one more thing I noticed about this story. The Grecian Jews were concerned about their widows and orphans being overlooked. And the people were willing to pick people from the Grecian Jews to lead up this effort. But here's another thing. The Grecian Jews were willing to serve and solve the problem. Okay? So bring the concern or the complaint and um, willing to be part of the solution. All right. So how are we doing in the modern church? Do we have a division of responsibilities? A plurality of leadership? Do we choose leaders based on spiritual qualifications? Do we model servant leadership? Okay, back to the early church. The word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Stephen, while being a servant leader, was now described as a man being full of God's grace and power. God was using him. He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Up until now, we've only seen that attributed to the apostles themselves. So here's Stephen. God using him. And using him greatly. His witness did not go unnoticed. And opposition rose among the non-believers. They argued with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Couldn't stand up against that. So they trumped up some false charges against him, seized him, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They claimed he had blasphemed against Moses and God. They said he'd heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to them. Change their customs. Anyone else relate to having your customs threatened? I can. That really jumped out at me. I mean, as I meditated over this scripture for the past few weeks, I could, I could relate to that. I could relate to these folks saying, oh, they're threatening our customs, they're threatening our way of life. Um, but they were more focused on the customs and traditions handed down to them than the God who created those customs and traditions for them. Can we understand the desire to hang on to traditions? I think we can. I'm guessing most of us have traditions in our lives and our families. I know we do. I'll tell a story on my twin sister, Linda, with her permission. Kurt and I married uh, in early October, 24 years ago. He promptly offered to um, host Thanksgiving dinner for my whole family. And everyone was happy to accept. And um, Kurt offered to roast the turkey because I had no idea how to do that. And um, as Thanksgiving came closer, I could tell that Linda was just kind of on edge about something. And I soon found out what that was. Kurt told me that she had called him and basically said, listen, 
thank you for offering to cook, but if we can't have my grandmother stuffing, you're going to see a grown woman cry at Thanksgiving. <laughs> well, Kurt's a highly intelligent man. He called my mom and asked for my grandmother's stuffing recipe. <laughs> We've had it every year since. Um, I still have no idea how to roast a turkey because that dear man has done it for 24 years in a row. Um, but uh, I do know how to make my grandmother's candy yams. I'll throw that in there. Um, it's funny. Okay, I'll tell you this story. I told Kurt that I was going to tell this story in the context of us holding on to traditions. And he said, oh, does that mean I can make a different stuffing this year? <laughs> and I said, well, no, because that doesn't really have to do with honoring God. Um, it doesn't have to do with God. And he said, no, it has to do with keeping your sister happy. And if I don't, I might meet God. So... <laughs> Tell you what, I almost fell down. I was laughing so hard. Um, here's another tradition in my family. At some point in my youth, um, everyone started like extending the celebration of Christmas to before Thanksgiving. Remember when we didn't do that, everyone? Yeah. Um, but my family decided we're not going to do that, and we're absolutely not going to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving dinner is over. And over time. Somehow, I think it was a mutual decision, but over time it became attributable to my dad. So now if you, you know, listen to carols prematurely, that's a crime reportable to the family patriarch. Um, but, um, but when we do start on our Christmas music, um, we love the Christmas album uh, made by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Anyone else know this? Yeah? You guys know it? Sweet. Um, it was released in 1968, and you can tell. And you can tell, but we love it, we love it. It was just Christmas to us. We absolutely love it. So about 15 years ago, I made up a CD, and it has all this lovely Baroque music on it. And the Baroque music lasts about the amount of time that it would take for people to start putting their forks down during the meal. And then all of a sudden, at a moment when you don't really know for sure, because you're all gabbing and stuff, Herb's trumpet comes on. And everyone goes silent. And we just all have this moment, oh, it's Christmas now. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Traditions are great, right? We love traditions. Um, so I'll make you all, be happy to make you all one of those CDs if you want it. Um, okay, so it's time for some audience participation. Show of hands. Who prefers marshmallows on their candy yams? Yeah, okay. Who says no marshmallows? Okay, all right. All right. Okay, who likes cranberry sauce made from the fresh cranberries? Okay, who wants it out of the can with the little rings on? Yeah, that'd be my brother-in-law. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, now who prefers a Douglas fir Christmas tree? Yeah, any Douglas fir fans out there? Yeah. How about a noble fir? Oh yeah, a lot of noble fans. Um, or an artificial tree. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, now here's the big one. Here's the big one. Brace yourselves. Who opens their Christmas presents on Christmas Eve? Mm-hmm. All right, Christmas morning? Okay. Now I know who's doing it wrong. Okay. All right. That was fun. And, and these traditions are harmless. But the, the, here's the sincere question that keeps coming through my mind after meditating on this scripture. In our faith life, do we put customs and traditions before God? Are we more concerned about what worship song we sing than whether we're worshiping together? 
Is concern over the style of serving the communion getting more attention than the sacrament itself? Do we put up a wall if a pastor or a Christian brother or sister challenges us in a way that threatens our traditions? Even in our small groups, are we holding on to anything that's tradition or habit when God is asking us to do something new? Give it some thought and some prayer. So the Holy Spirit provided Stephen with a vision of God's church, and he would not sway from it. When the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Stephen replied with the longest address in the book of Acts. Now I'm not going to comment on everything he said, or this will become another longest address, but I do have some thoughts. The Jewish leaders accused Stephen of disrespecting Jewish history and tenets. And Stephen got up with his face glowing like an angel and said, let's review. They gave a pretty straightforward recital of Jewish history that at first blush didn't seem to address the charges against him. But let's look closer. In reciting this history, Stephen had a lot of material to choose from. So let's pay attention to what he chose to highlight. He spoke about Moses at length, probably because the Sanhedrin expressed a lot of concerns over Moses. God gave the law through Moses, and these leaders had built their lives around keeping that law. But Moses was rejected by the Jews, and not just once. Raised in Pharaoh's home, but knowing he was a Hebrew, he came to a moment when he decided to identify with his people, and the response he got was, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Makes me think of the more modern day. You're not the boss of me. Well, they didn't really know him then, so maybe that that was it. But when he was on the mountain receiving God's law, the people were making idols for themselves. And they knew that he was appointed by God to lead them at that time. In rejecting God, they rejected Moses. Stephen's message was that the Jews had been rebellious throughout history. And the Sanhedrin was part of that. So now who was blaspheming against Moses? Was it the people who rebelled against God? Or was it the man who listened for God and recognized recognized his Messiah when he came? Now what about the charges of blasphemy against God by threatening that Jesus would destroy the temple? Stephen discussed the wilderness tabernacle and the temple. The temple was glorious and the people were very proud of it. They were very attached to their temple. But he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made up all these things so that they came into the being? Declares the Lord. Perhaps Stephen was saying that the day of the temple was passing. Jesus the Messiah had come. And he was the real temple. So who was blaspheming against God in the temple? The people who didn't recognize the real temple? Or the man who was a living temple for the Spirit of God? (laughs) So here's something that I noticed that permeates these two chapters. A transition. Stephen's vision that the time of the temple was passing is a transition that paves the way for presenting the gospel to the Gentiles. In his address, when Stephen talked about the calling of Abraham, 
He said that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. God appeared to Moses when he was in Midian. He told him, take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. God did these things not in Israel, but in Gentile territory. Stephen is saying that God cannot be contained. He can't be contained to a temple, a geographical area, or a people group. God is the God of all people. If this part of the message hadn't yet infuriated the Sanhedrin, Stephen's closing three accusations would. He essentially told them, you resist the Holy Spirit, and you always have. You persecute and kill the prophets, God's prophets, and you always have. You break the law of Moses, and you always have. Well, you have to give credit to Stephen for boldness in the face of persecution. Even in the face of his opponent's boiling rage, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. They looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he told them what he saw. Boldness didn't come from him. Their boiling rage turned into a wildfire, and they dragged him out of the city, and they stoned him to death. And a man named Saul held their coats while they did it. You may note that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10 describes Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. And this is in contrast to the fact um, that the priests always stood because their work was never done. So Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Um, but here's what it says in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are already being made holy. So why does Stephen see Jesus standing? Maybe it has to do with what Jesus said in Matthew 10.32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. Stephen was tried and convicted by men, but Jesus was his advocate in heaven. The church was growing, and it was time to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's going to happen real soon in our study. <laughs> God inserted Paul, who would later become, excuse me, Saul, who would later become Paul, into the scene of Stephen's martyrdom. Saul would go on to persecute the church for a time, but he would do it carrying with him this Christ-like image of Stephen, who gave these final words before he died. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Heavenly Father, I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit. I want to see your vision for the church. But I confess that I'm scared of what that could bring. Strengthen me, Father. Show me when holding on to things of this world is obscuring my view of you. Keep me and all of my sisters here in Christ close to you. 
Give us the boldness to share your story and our stories with the people you have appointed to hear them. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who was with Stephen throughout this story and who is with me and every sister in this room. I ask that you would continue to guide our morning, to guide our discussions, that we can honor and love each other and honor and love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.